the vast majority of businesses, the very backbone of the economy, are defined in a derogatory fashion by government statisticians as small and medium enterprises. There's a much better way of looking at them, a better mental model to have in our heads. It's that they're the champions of value creation. This is the Value Creators Podcast. Value creation is the sole purpose of any business and every business, and for all of us as entrepreneurs. Listen to great value creators as they share their successes, trials, and lessons learned. Join us as we explore how to think as value creators, how to act as value creators, and how to view business through the lens of value creation. Language plays an important role in the way we think about the systems that we live in and we operate in. One of the uses of language that has really riled me over the years is the way government statisticians refer to the majority of businesses, in the United States at least, as small and medium enterprises. That's derogatory. What's important is not their size. There are six million of these businesses, and they contribute more than half of GDP, much more than half of growth, most of job creation, and the majority of innovation. It's their contribution we should be looking at and not their size. Our guest today is Dr. Herman Simon. He's chairman of the consulting company he founded, Simon Kucher, and he's developed a database and a research project he calls Hidden Champions. This looks at those small and medium enterprises and identifies them as superior value creators. They're typically higher margin and more profitable. They're faster growing. They're more efficient in terms of revenue per employee. They reinvest more in innovation, and they earn a higher return on that invested capital. They're the champions of value creation. He calls them hidden champions. Dr. Herman Simon is here today to tell us about the secrets behind this incredible outperformance by small and medium businesses, or better said, hidden champions. Dr. Simon, thanks for joining the Value Creators podcast. Hunter, I'm looking forward to our discussion. You're the founder of Simon Kusher and Partners. It's a global business consultancy. You're also the originator and developer of the Hidden Champions, which I'm going to describe as a database. It's a survey vehicle as well to gather information. You've captured it in a number of books with the title, The Hidden Champions, The Hidden Champions of the 21st Century, The Hidden Champions of the Chinese Century. I've read many of them. These are companies you describe as highly successful, but unknown because they concealed behind a curtain of inconspicuousness, invisibility, and in some cases, deliberate secrecy. We sometimes call them in the U.S. small and medium enterprises, but that doesn't really capture what you've got in your database. So tell us a little bit about the background, Herman, and the, the history of the Hidden Champions database and research. It's interesting how it came about. In 1987, the famous Harvard professor Ted Levitt visited me. He made the term globalization popular. And that's why he was interested in the competitiveness of countries. And he asked me a simple question. Why is Germany so successful in exports? And um, at that time, we were number one in exports um, ahead of the US, which has a much larger economy. And everybody thinks that's due to the large corporations, which everybody knows, like Mercedes, BMW, Siemens, etc. 
But I looked more and more into this and found that Germany's export strength comes from these hidden champions, mid-sized and smaller companies which are global market leaders. And behind that is an obvious secret, you could say. The world does not only consist of the large markets, of the Googles and um, the Toyotas, etc., but it consists of tens of thousands of markets and in each of them you find a global market leader. And these are the hidden champions. Nobody knows them. Of course, their customers know them, but the general public is unaware of them. And in the same time, they are global market leaders, so they must be doing something really well. Let's dig into that, Herman. One of the points you make in your book is that these are high-performance companies, not just that they're market leaders and globalized exporters, but their metrics, their performance metrics are higher. What are some of the ones that you would highlight? I see three pillars of the strategy and then several tools to achieve these goals. The first, the foundation is the ambition to be the best in the world. Many of the founders and the ensuing generation say, we only do it if we are the best in the world. I mean, that's a very, very high ambition. How can you achieve that? Only through focus. Only focus leads to world class. And they are highly focused on their technologies, on their market. But focus makes a market small. How do you make it big? By globalizing. So even a small market gets sufficiently large if you do it all over the world. So these are the three pillars, ambition to be the best, focus, globalization. And then we have the tools. The most important one is innovation. To give you a few quantitative indicators, hidden champions spend twice as much as the average company on research and development. And what is more important, they have five times more patents per employee than the average company. And their innovations are characterized by an integration of technology and customer needs. That is a challenge of innovation. Not to be a technical nerd, but to integrate your technical competencies with customer needs so that you deliver real value. And then we have many even quantitative uh, indicators which distinguish them from normal companies. For instance, one is the average tenure of the CEOs, which is 21 years. In large corporations, that's six years. I think that tells you everything about long-term orientation, 21 years compared to six years. Then the turnover or churn rate of the employees. The world average is 11.3%. For the hidden champions, it's 2.7%. The US is even higher than the world average at around 15%. So they have highly qualified employees who are loyal and practically stay their whole life at these companies. So these are a few also quantitative indicators which sets them apart from normal companies. Yeah, and just to cover some of the, the more common quantitative metrics that result from that, Herman, they've got high margins, they've got high return on revenues, high return on investment. They're very efficient in their, their use of uh, revenue and capital, right? Yes. Their 
profit margin, net profit margin is three times the average of German companies. And if you look at the, I said they are market leaders, but their prices are about 10 to 15% about the market average. So not the cheapest one is the market leader, but the best one who delivers higher value to customer and can afford to charge higher price and still retain the market leadership. And that is also reflected in their competitive advantages where they put equal weight on product quality and service quality. And, and that is very important. Modern products are increasingly complex but require qualified service. So it's not just a matter to deliver your products from the US to China or from Germany to India, but also to guarantee an excellent service in the target market. And they achieve that by establishing their own sales organizations, their own subsidiaries there. They usually start with sales and service and expand it into production, for instance. There are more than 2,000 German factories in China, more than American factories, because they try to come close to their customers by delivering excellent service and increasingly also manufacturing in the target market. You have a couple of expressions in your books, Herman, about exactly that. I just want to drill down a little bit further. One is you say that they establish extremely close relationships with customers. So I'd just like you to say a little bit more about that, the relationship component, and what you've already mentioned, I think, a little bit, but comprehensive problem solutions, which suggests that that's the role. It's, it's solving problems for customers. But just go a little bit more into this relationship factor. What is meant by extremely close relationships? Also some numbers. Of the Hidden Champions employees, 38% have regular customer contact. In large corporations, that's only 8%. I think this alone defines a difference in a customer-oriented culture in customer proximity. And just to give you one example, Kronis is a global leader in bottling systems. That fits also into your second question. And the CEO of Kronis calls together once per month all the service technicians, because he says the service technicians are best in knowing what the customer problems are because they service the big bottling systems on the customer side, understand what's going on. And he lends his voice, his weight to these service technicians, confronts them with the research and development engineers who are much better educated to force the R&D people to observe these problems and needs of the customers. And comprehensive solution means a customer does not only want a product or a service, he wants, she wants a solution for the problem. And for instance, Kronis, today a relatively large company with about $4 billion in, in revenue, they started with labeling machines where they only put labels on the bottle. That was 50 years ago, and they expanded their value chain and today offer a complete solution, be it for Coca-Cola or Anheuser or whoever it is. So 
they went from a single solution, labeling machines, to a complete solution where they deliver the whole bottling line and the service. And that is a development which we have seen in many of these industrial markets, that the hidden champions expand. They do not go in other markets, they do not diversify, but they expand along the value chain by delivering a more comprehensive solution. And it, it sounds like that's customer-driven, right? That's the customer saying, I need this other part of the service. I've got a, another bigger problem I want you to help. It's customer-driven. Yeah, it's, as I said, with regard to innovation, it's not one-sidedly customer-driven. It's driven by the integration of customer needs and technology. And the Hidden Champions, as I illustrated already, are very innovative Many, many of these innovations are small. For instance, Stiel is a global leader in chainsaws. They introduced 42 innovations in one year related to the weight, uh, to worker safety, to noise, to environmental pollution. Their innovation is continuous and gradual rather than disruptive. And that's another quote, by the way, from this famous Harvard professor, Ted Levitt. He said, perfection comes from doing many small things better. It's also part of the philosophy. For instance, uh, Miele, the washing machine of the high-quality washing machine manufacturer, they have since 125 years their slogan, their motto, always better. From day to day, always a little better and always a little better than the competition. It sounds like there are two drivers of that innovation, Herman. One is one is the technological commitment, always a little bit better. But the other one is an employee commitment, right? The employees want to service the customer better and better, make the technology better and better. Yeah, you, could, you could say you have three drivers. The technology, the customer, who also injects uh, his or her ideas, and the employees. The employees are the ones who experience the day-to-day -day operations and they can make a lot of uh, good suggestions, which may not lead to a patent, but to a small improvement for the customer. So you could say you have three driving forces, technology, employees, customers, and integrating them is the challenge. But you talk about a competitive advantage. In One aspect is also interesting. We Germans don't play a role in mass digitalization. But in industrial digitalization, we are absolute top. Just to give you two examples. The most sophisticated machines which are made today are so-called extreme ultraviolet lithography, on which the ever more miniaturized chips are made. And two key components there are from Hidden Champions, from Trumpf, the global leader in lasers. They have a laser which puts 50,000 tin drops per second on the ship. 50,000 tin drops per second. And the other one is Zeiss, global leader in optics and photonics. Their optical system is able to put 56 billion, 56 billion transistors on the surface of your fingertip. And experts say that's not rocket science, that's far beyond rocket science. And these are the things which are deep in the value chain. Nobody knows them, and uh, these are the hidden champions. So a couple of things I want to pick up on there, Herman. 
One is that you say that the competitive advantage of these companies is their specialized employee skills and, and capabilities. As you said earlier, they're people who have been with the company a long time. They're picking up learning. They're picking up continuous improvement. Is that what the economists call tacit knowledge? It's not necessarily articulated and written down. It's the long-term experience of working on these projects. That's a very important part. It can even not be, be written down or codified. Uh, one example, a company called Bush Wacom Pumps. They are the global leader for Wacom Pumps. They make a pump where the rotor and the cylinder have a distance of less than one third of a human hair. Can you imagine that? And this rotor is revolving with, with high speed. The distance is one third. Nobody else can make that. And, and that is the tacit knowledge of, of the engineers and also of the workers who really, who make the machine. And a, a lot is tacit knowledge and even not protected by patents, but it's uh, the learning, the know-how accumulated over, over years in the workforce and in the engineers and scientists they have. And many of these things are very time-consuming, you could say very long-term. Or for instance, the development of this optical extreme ultraviolet system of size took 22 years. They worked 22 years. And today they practically have a monopoly in the world. That takes us to the question of long-term perspective. Herman, which you mentioned a couple of times in your, your book, that the goals that you talked about, the ambitious goals, are set over the long term. People are looking at, as you say, 20-year-plus durations, intergenerational kinds of perspectives. Where does that come from? Does that come from the leaders, or is it a strategy? How do you tell us about long term? Yes, that comes from the leaders, and often uh, behind the leaders, the, the, the families. 70% of these companies are, are family-owned, which does not necessarily mean that the CEO is also from the family. We see increasingly that non-family members become CEO, but uh, the long-term orientation, not paying much, uh, much attention to quarterly results and being under short-term pressure a la, a la Jack Welch, is of course an essential element which comes from the, the owners and the entrepreneurs. And that also cr uh, creates a, a, a competitive advantage in terms of time. If somebody starts to imitate the size system, they may not need 22 years, but they cannot do it in, in, in three or five years. Yeah, so there's an accumulated advantage there that, that's based on time. Yeah, yeah. But also there's a cultural component to that. You know, here in the, the US and in those big companies that you talked about, we look at quarterly stock price changes and, and those kinds of things. Some of these companies are, are publicly held or they have some equity in the public hands, but there's still this long-termism, this longer-term perspective. Is, is that a cultural difference between the U.S. And, and Europe or is there something else there? Yes and no. Because I started in Germany with looking at the champions with my surveys and then I found uh, also thousands of hidden champions outside Germany, also in the US. So it's a, a common trade of these invisible global market leaders. There are more in, in Germany or German-speaking countries like Switzerland, Austria also have uh, many per capita. 
but I also find them in the US. It's more a trade of a special strategy, concept, long-term oriented, continuous innovation, uh, high lo employee loyalty, uh, these characteristics I, I, I find everywhere. In New Zealand, I found them in Japan, but they are quite contrary to the modern teaching in business schools where you say, oh, you must grow like Google did uh, or you, you, you must uh, go public uh, as soon as possible. Uh, they don't follow these modern uh, recipes. One of the aspects that we've been talking about, you mentioned it, I just want to go a little bit further, is this position, you call it deep in the value chain. Often these companies are making components for customers that Nobody sees, a lot of people don't know about the, you know, some of the uh, processes you talked about are invisible to us. Is that an opportunity? Is that a place where entrepreneurs should be looking for these kinds of opportunities? Absolutely. Uh, I, I said in the beginning, we have, say, 100,000 separable markets. And in each of them, you have the opportunity to become the best. And it's quite unlikely... <laughs> When you start as an entrepreneur that you are going to beat Google, maybe you, you are an Einstein and have a fantastic idea. The chances, and I speak from my own experience. I was a professor in my first life, good but not uh, superb academic. And I always had the ambition to apply what I did, especially in pricing research. So I started with two assistants and we founded Simon Kutcher. Dr. Kutcher was my first doctoral student. Today, we have 2,200 people in 47 offices, and we are also hidden champion. We are the global leader in price consulting. Could I have achieved that again by, by going against McKinsey, becoming a general management consultant? No way. But I had the ambition to be the best in our field. We focused on pricing. That's a small market if we do it only in Germany or San Diego. By globalizing, we crossed 565 million dollars last year. And uh, if, if things go well, we will break the, the billion threshold in perhaps four or five years. So I applied this strategy one-to-one -one as a startup entrepreneur. Actually, I was 48 when I gave up my professorship already, not a youngster. And uh, we choose a niche, we focused and we globalized. So I can assure you, it works, but it does not lead to success within three months or three years. Uh, we have been on the road for, for 38 years now. Well, congratulations on that. I, let's go to that speciality, uh, Herman, because you talk about in, in your books as one of the characteristics of these hidden champions. They're good at what you call value capture, and pricing is an important part of that that they understand how to identify the value in what they're delivering and how to price for it. So can you talk us through that a little bit about value capture as an expertise? I'm often asked what the most important aspect of price or pricing is. My answer is always value to customer. And the old Romans were very smart in their Latin language they have the same word for value and price, namely pretium, like in, in precious. So understanding value is a condition for success. 
but it's also the condition to get the price right. When I, I said that on the average, the price of the hidden champions is about 15% above the market average price, you can conclude that the, the value they deliver is about 15% better than the average. So understanding and even quantifying the value is the precondition for getting the price right. Because the willingness of the customer to pay is only the reflection of the perceived value. And we actually, as a, as a rule of thumb, I say, if you deliver 20% better value, don't charge 20% more, share the value premium with your customer, then maybe you charge 10 or 12% more so that the customer also has an advantage. Is pricing excellence a set of skills or processes, or is, is it one of these things that you focus on over the years, you get better and better at it? It's both. Yeah, it's uh, a set of skill. It's, it's quite uh, sophisticated. And uh, due to the internet, we have had more innovations in the last 20 years than in the 2000 years before. Just to give you one example, sharing economy. You, you can rent a, a scooter by the minute. This idea was already uh, created by Socrates, a Greek philosopher, 2000 years ago. He said, the value of a product does not come from the ownership, but from the actual use. Why was the system of the sharing economy only introduced a few years ago? Because without the internet, it was not possible. Uh, when, you, when you sell a bicycle, a scooter for $1,000, it's one transaction. If you lease it or rent it by the minute, it's thousands of transactions, which must be executed at practically zero costs. The other point is you have to bring together many customers and uh, and your supply and that was all so it's you can say a high tech a high skill like freemium where you have a basic product free a premium product uh, has to be paid for pay per use uh, we see so many innovations that it's very uh, getting very sophisticated and we have to measure that that is the challenge and it's also a process because <laughs> The work is not done by deciding uh, in, the, in the top management, we charge this price, but your sales force must implement it. You must negotiate with the retailers and uh, you, you must decide on, on, on discounts. If you are in a project business, you must deal with uh, your, your industrial customers. So the process, having the right incentive systems, the right... Uh, education for your sales reps is equally important to achieve the right price, especially under inflation. And my, my most recent book is actually beating inflation, where this plays a very important role, the process. Yeah, that's the numerical part. Can you tell us more about how these companies calculate the value they're creating for their customers? Some of that is monetary. I'm saving you money or I'm helping you generate revenues, but a lot of it is subjective. Can you actually calculate that value in order to put it into pricing? You cannot calculate it, but you can measure it. And the most important method to measure it is called conjoint measurement. It means we are not asking the customers how much are you willing to pay or would you buy the product at this price. 
we confront the customer with alternatives from which he or she can choose. And into these alternatives, we pack different attributes like brand, like quality, like uh, energy or whatever it is and price. And from the choices of the customers in our tests, we have a model from which we can derive and quantify the value they attribute to a product, to a brand, to a, a distribution channel. So this is uh, done by, by uh, computer models, by simulation models. And uh, of course, it all rests on data. We need data. Uh, sometimes people ask me, uh, say, you are the pricing guru, what should we charge for? I, I say, I have no idea. I have to test, uh, to uh, diagnose the customer's willingness to pay, to be able to recommend a price for a product or a service. We do that across all industries. So your model is universal now. Yeah, and it's very different. A bank is different from a pharmaceutical company, which is different from an airline or a car company. Uh, the habits, the trade uh, margins uh, are, are very sector-specific. Another observable characteristic of the hidden champions, Herman, that's distinctive is their different approach to financing and to the balance sheet and to capital markets. It's all in your book to generalize their high in equity financing, low in debt, and the equity is often held by large blocks. Like you've mentioned families, but it could be private equity, it could be a bank. They have lower capital costs. They're not constrained by capital. So can you go into that a little bit, why, why that, their approach is different, how it's different? They are quite conservative in their financing, have high equity ratio. Their average equity ratio is 42% of the total capital is equity. And they are rather shy to go public. They prefer to uh, do self-financing from the cash flow, which is consistent with their continuous growth and not uh, spectacular growth where they needed uh, higher, immediate higher amounts of capital. On the other hand, I think in the increasingly intensive global competition, that's a disadvantage. American companies go public, collect huge sums of uh, capital, and the Chinese do the same, which allows them to grow faster. So I encourage the hidden champions, especially in Europe, to become more open to new forms of financing, to uh, being listed in order to be able to grow faster if a market is developing very, very rapidly. They have an advantage there, you say, that the finance is not a constraint. They, you mentioned that they invest more. Their R&D expenditures are greater. They uh, invest in capital, so they can find that capital easily. A lot of it is self-financing, right? It's uh, mostly self-financed, and um, finance is indeed uh, mostly not a constraint. The constraint are talents, qualified people. But if you are in a, in a rapidly expanding market, uh, you may miss an opportunity if you confine yourself to self-financing instead of taking more capital from the outside in and being able to, to grow faster. So 
and especially the Chinese are becoming very, very serious uh, competitors of the Germans and they go public very early in the development of the company and, and collect huge sums of money. And interestingly, the Chinese employ more R&D people. Just to give you an example, I mentioned SAIS, the optical company. They have 3,300 people in research and development. And the Chinese company of comparable size, Hick Vision, the global leader in surveillance cameras, they have 9,300. And that reminds me of an old story. <laughs> you still remember Nokia. Nokia had 50% of the mobile phone market in 2005. I visited them in Helsinki in Finland and uh, they were very arrogant and said we have 19,000 people in research and development. Nobody even comes close to us. Three years later, I attended a speech by the CEO of Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications company. He said, we have 52,000 people in research and development. 19, Nokia. And then there was a third guy, Apple, which was also very powerful in R&D. And of course, that's a big challenge for financing. Because R&D people do not uh, generate immediate revenue, so you have to pay them. And uh, the revenue hopefully comes five or ten years later. So where you have high R&D intensity and fast-growing markets, I think you should be more open to external financing. I've been doing a lot of research into some of the early uh, entrepreneurial ownership in corporations in the U.S. and Germany. And that was the standard back then when Standard Oil and, and Singer Sewing Machine and those early companies, they generated enough revenue to self-finance all of their R&D, which was immense. They, they had huge capital expenditures, but that was the standard format, self-financing. So your hidden champions are going back to that, uh, that format. Yeah, of course, capital markets at that time were not as uh, developed as today. Right, but that's where a lot of this short-termism comes from, I think, that the capital markets, at least the equity markets, force you into short-term considerations. Let me ask you about organization, Herman. One, that's something that you mentioned, and people are very confused about organization these days, but you say, keep it simple. Decentralization is the key. Absolutely right. Um, the hidden champions have relatively simple organizations, of course, part of this is the focus. If you are focused on one technology on, on, and one market, your organization can be much simpler than if you are diversified with high complexity, have matrix organizations, etc. Behind that is a leadership principle, which I think is also key. That's called mission-oriented leadership, or to express it somewhat differently, the leadership of the hidden champions is both authoritarian in the principles and flexible in the details. So mission-oriented leadership means the boss, the commander, gives a clear mission. This is a mission which has to be achieved, but how you execute it is left to the people on the front, to the workers. And that is actually, that was invented by the famous Prussian general von Moltke 150 years ago. Say you have a battalion commander and a platoon, a captain and a major. 
The major says, okay, occupy this mountain. In this system, he is not allowed to tell the captain who uh, commands the platoon how he does it. He must leave the execution to the captain. Because if he describes the process, he will introduce rigidity and the captain must have the freedom to adjust flexibly to the situation which he encounters. And this mission-oriented leadership is a key of, you could say, of the leadership system of German mid-sized hidden champions. It requires, of course, qualified subordinates, qualified workers. You cannot leave the decision to somebody who is not able to think or is not qualified. And you have an expression of... Uh... We call that the independently thinking fighter. You need the independently thinking fighter, not a stupid receiver of command. Emergent strategy. You say that strategy in those situations is not developed in some formal planning process with all the math and calculation and so on like that. It emerges from those conditions, right? So are we all thinking wrongly about strategy? We've got to let it emerge? I think a lot of emergent strategy. I mean, in my own career as an entrepreneur, I've made many mistakes. Uh, for instance, uh, 30 years ago, we thought we are smart. We also establish an education arm, a kind of small specialized business school, and this didn't work. Of course, in strategy, you have to adjust to changing situations, to trends. For instance, now we have artificial intelligence and uh, we have to think how can we adjust our offerings, integrate artificial intelligence into this. We could not plan that five or ten years ago, that in 2023 uh, the whole world of, of artificial intelligence, chat GPT, becomes evident. We have to adjust now, to emerge our strategy, you could say. And one question there is, of course, another new buzzword, agility. How long do we need to develop this emergence? We don't have uh, much time, because otherwise somebody else will be ahead of us and be smarter. Right. Right. So speed is one of the uh, elements that people talk about a lot here in management science. Are our hidden champions particularly fast at that, that kind of adaptation that you're talking about? Yeah. They are slow in their principles. They, they, they do not, as I said in the case of Miele, the washing machine, they have the same motto, always better since 125 years. So in their principles, they do not adjust quickly. They are slow. But how they execute them, they are, they are much faster. And that's part of the simple organization. I mean, in, these companies have on the average about 2,100 employees and it's easy to access the boss and you can get a decision quite quickly, whereas in large corporations you have to go through committees, meetings, etc. So part of the, the agility and the speed is also the, the size and the simple organization. Well, let's uh, wrap up, Herman on this subject of, of the hiddenness of the hidden champions, where our business conversation in the U.S. tends to be dominated, as you said, by these big corporations, especially their daily stock market performance. And then we start to get into issues of corporate culture and even corporate morality, and people think these corporations are somehow 
ill-intentioned or evil, the the conversation becomes anti-business. If it was more knowledgeable about these hidden champions and these kinds of corporations, would our conversation about capitalism be different, do you think? It'd be more positive? Yes, I, I, I think so. Large, very powerful corporations are seen as a threat by many people. And in many cases, they are a threat because they have quasi-monopolistic positions, etc. You cannot avoid uh, certain companies. You, you simply have to use their products or services. If I think of the internet, etc., we have some of these uh, very powerful guys, which still does not say that they are not delivering good, good service. And of course, scandals of large corporations are carried into the public. Everybody knows them. I cannot say that the hidden champions are more moral, are better people or so. They're also bad guys, bad apples among them. But since they are long-term oriented, usually family-owned, many of them also have higher, higher standards when it comes to their principles, to morality, to ethics. Uh, they are also not under, under the same pressure usually. So uh, the good ones are maybe different from the average well-known corporation. By that, I don't mean to say that the the average well-known corporation is a bad guy, but some of them have really deeply rooted values, family-rooted values. The values of these corporations tend, as you say, to be uniting and energizing and positive. That's part of the Hidden Champions formula. Yeah. Yeah. Herman, thank you very much for today. We'll provide links to our listeners to some of your books on the subject of hidden champions and all the great insights you provide there. And we'll also put a link to your wonderful biography, Many Worlds, One Life, A Remarkable Journey from Farmhouse to the Global Stage. So Herman, once again, thank you so much for today and thank you for your new insights that will get a lot of people thinking when they hear the term small and medium business. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Value Creators Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can visit thevaluecreators.com for links and resources related to this episode. And check out hunterhastings.com for more content on entrepreneurial business management based on value creation principles.